0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The main team.
1: Mega Bears fan.
0: With guest co-host... Willowbrook. Have you listened to the show before? I have. <gasps> Whoa, you are ahead of some people who have been guests on this show. Wow, I don't know how to handle this. What's on in my script. Jason... Jason, I thought you were going to write the script for when someone said they listened to the show and they were a first-time guest. Where's my copy? Jason went to go get the copy. Okay, that's, it is actually done. I am going to say,
2: that sounded like somebody what unplugging a headset.
0: <laughs> Jason's like, oh crap, I forgot to do that. <laughs> what did I get? <laughs> <laughs> you just gave me material for the bumper to the show. Thank you. Oh, okay. Glad to be of service. Welcome to
3: Polycast episode 320. I'm the me and team, and today I'm joined by Dan Q. There's nothing quiet on this show. Makalua.
4: Only 100 more episodes, so we can make inappropriate jokes.
1: Mega Bears fan. I can never remember which of my headset jacks go into which port. And uh, guest co-host, Willowbrook.
2: Hello, world.
3: And the world greets us in return. Willow, what made you decide to come on
0: the show?
2: Well, I don't usually get to talk as opposed to type about civilization so i figured this was an opportunity to actually talk with people who like to talk about civ
0: you obviously also want to talk to people who want to talk to you about civ and yes you have found those people
2: i am glad to have found them
0: just walk up to people at work and start discussing build orders it doesn't matter (laughs) they have no context (laughs) right You know what the perfect icebreaker is and to find out if someone actually plays civ you walk up to them and say Hey, shift enter is my savior. Let's see what their reaction is.
3: Narrows it down, but it does not perfectly narrow it down to Civ. I think other games also have a forced end turn feature. Oh, inspired by Civ.
0: Okay, well yeah, well, that's yeah. that's fair enough. Okay.
2: And I was not aware of that feature for quite a while, so I might have been confused if somebody had introduced that line to me. <laughs> you be like, Pardon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are you talking about?
4: Hey, Archon wing started a topic uh seems like it's better just to build warriors. Just come to think about it, slingers seem to be a liability early game. They're not good against anything. I'm not so sure about that, but points out they're useless with horse spawns. Anything good in rough terrain, they can't exactly protect you from attack. Well, I don't know. You have the right area, you can hide slingers behind your city and even if they're coming at you, sling, sling, sling. I mean, I don't know. If you build walls fast enough, that helps too. But that they also get crushed versus archers and chariots. Well, he does think archers are good, though. just not very good at attacking cities that are in forests or hills. And we get enough. I mean, AI is a little bit better now at picking on the melee unit instead.
1: An unwalled city still falls pretty quickly to, like, two or three archers.
4: Yeah, uh-huh. it doesn't matter that it's on forest or on a hill. It's not as defended. He thinks that scouts are on good terrain or even better for holding grounds. Well, they can do that and put the city under siege. I give him that. Warriors work with oligarchy and upgrade to swords, which are more useful. Um, yeah, but Slingers upgrade to Arches, which are also very useful.
3: I'd say Swords are more so, but they have a longer time frame on that.
4: Yeah, you have to wait a lot longer for the Swords to be there and be relevant, where the Arches will come really quickly. And you have to get the Iron,
0: so... Yeah. The other advantage to a Slinger is you get some Slingers out and you kill a unit, and now you've got the Eureka Boost to get yourself to Archers. And then you can turn around and upgrade those Slingers into Archers who have experience at a discount as compared to, for example, how much it would have cost you to purchase an archer.
4: Yeah, 120 to 160 gold. So it's like, uh, you know, I think I'll just take the upgrade.
1: Yeah, that slinger to archer upgrade is uh, pretty cheap. And if you get at least three slingers out early, you upgrade them to archers, you also get the tech boost for machinery. Mm -hmm.
0: Which is also what will get you to uh, Crossbowman, which is the next upgrade path for archers, in case anybody's listening wondering, wait, what?
1: Right. And also, if you're playing against the AI or the barbarians, they'll often focus their attacks on units that are already damaged. So if you send a warrior adjacent to a barbarian outpost first, the barbarians will attack that warrior. And then you can move in that slinger adjacent and start slinging. And they'll oftentimes Mm -hmm. just keep attacking the warrior while your slinger picks them off. So you can do things like that as well to kind of take advantage of the way that the AI plays the game. So I definitely wouldn't say that they're useless. I usually build at least three of them so I can get those tech boosts. Spudsy 74. It also
0: points out two other things. Number one, as a ranged unit, slingers can attack without suffering defensive fire. You can have two or three slingers attack a unit and not receive any defensive hits. They remain at full value after attacking. Although admittedly, Spudsy, after they do that, unless there has been sufficient damage to the unit that's right beside it, the... Well, a slinger will probably subsequently get crushed. So uh, you got to watch that, but that's true. And also, and this is for Ku, they also have an advantage to getting the first strike in battle against a warrior as slingers can attack into an adjacent square, regardless of the movement costs in order to enter that square. Which is also true. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to move there, but I can, in fact, attack there. Really, I find that the slingers' biggest disadvantage is they only have the one range in order to attack. So you need to be very strategic about... as kind of also pointed out Mackie, okay, let's move this slinger onto this particular terrain, like hills or a jungle, or a forest tile, or maybe being able to attack a unit across a river. So it's going to be able to get that strike, and then when that unit wants to be able to strike back, I have some means of defense, which will then allow me to either upgrade the slinger, because they get a promotion, and then that heals, or I can actually move the slinger out of the way, where it's already gotten that first hit, and it's on the path to having experience. While you are probably very, very shortly going to be able to get to archery, even if you don't have the Eureka boost, it's not that far down the road.
3: Yeah, I would just like to point out that on high difficulties, building warriors first is higher priority. If you don't, there's a good chance you're going to die. Yeah. It's not like you don't build ranged units or you don't build warriors. Yeah, Archon Wing's initial thing here, I, I, I don't agree, good to get ranged units eventually, but as a first build, warriors are safer. You can prevent things from surrounding your city very easily using warriors. And you can make it extremely costly to attack warriors on the difficult terrain. And that will buy you enough time to get city defenses going, to get slingers up to archers, to actually build slingers or whatever. But if you build slingers first, you're going to have like six plus warriors in your face. And uh, there's no like attack the warrior with uh, three slingers and then it's dead and you'll have to worry about it. You know, so there's five more warriors on you and now they're exposed.
0: Yeah, or worse yet, you've got some uh, Barbarian and Horse Spawn. Now you're going up against (laughs) mounted units, and you just have Slingers. That's also very, very bad.
3: Yeah, you just hide in the city at that point. But you can only do that with one unit
1: at a time, so... So you want to be very precise and deliberate with where you move your Slingers. You don't want to leave them exposed, because yes, they are made of paper, and they will die very easily if you do leave them exposed. I agree, but I recommend always doing this with every unit, considering who's getting well, yeah. first attack and where you're putting your stuff. Yeah, that tip applies to all ranged units, but um, I'm just saying it's particularly important for the slingers because you know an archer can still take two or three hits, even from contemporary units, whereas a slinger can oftentimes fall to just one unit, yeah, especially if that unit has promotions.
3: I would extend this advice
1: to melee and mounted even. It's really important for controlling units. Well, yeah, but the big difference is that with melee units, both units are taking damage either way. The, That's true, but... The ranged units, you want to take advantage of the attacking without taking damage.
3: Who's getting first attack and where, and avoiding free-range attacks to the enemy are both extremely significant when you're using melee units.
1: Yeah. Now, if the enemy has archers and you still have slingers, you're in big trouble, because the range two, they're just going to pick off all your slingers. Yeah.
0: I mean, on episode 318, there was a thread started by Cornplanter about, hey, is the Archer Rush still viable? Kind of the focusing just on that, at the expense of Warriors, for example, and other melee units, and now this is the flip of that argument, and it's even more bluntly expressed, which is it's better to just build Warriors. And how many times have we said, and already on this episode, it's a combined arms is going to give you the best Possibility. And there was even Benito Chavez, who at one point said, warriors can be risky to build. If they don't get any iron, they are weak in the classical era and are useless beyond that. Well, if warriors didn't upgrade beyond swordsmen, then you might have an argument once you get into the later eras, because warriors are definitely useful in the ancient era. However, there, there's this thing called Niter... Man, I'm sounding really sassy. But anyway, there's this thing called Niter that warriors could, in fact, upgrade to Muscomen later on. So it's not that they are then weak in the classical era. Mm, questionable. I mean, that depends in part on were you're actually able to use those warriors. Have they gotten any promotions? Is there any kind of decent land, you know, that they can be on to attack from to improve their defense? They're getting attacked, like I say archers. But being useless beyond that? No, they're not useless beyond that. At worst... They are spawn busters and scouting nets.
3: In other words, if you somehow cannot secure iron and you have nobody to attack because you're on your own continent or something, you can position the warriors to intercept barbarian scouts. So you don't get scouted. And as long as they're between the camp and you, they're still reasonably effective at actually killing the scouts, but certainly they give you plenty of time to react. So you don't actually get barb invasions if you don't want them. And on top of that, They are an inexpensive unit that costs zero maintenance that lets you see anything approaching you long before it hits your borders, which gives you a lot more time to react to actual NAI civs or even human civs attacking you. Uh, You really don't want someone declaring on you with like 10 units on your border and you only have one or two turns notice. If you make a screening net you have like 10 turns notice that's a big difference if <laughs> you could easily save a city when you otherwise could not have in doing so so it's good to crank out some units like this uh, normally you'd use a scout but if you know they're used for your warriors because you don't have resources you're not paying that much extra in production to invest in the warriors
2: appeal is irrelevant Fear Son writes, is it me or is appeal basically not important at all in this game? How frequently do you check appeal lenses? Why? Well, as numerous people point out in the thread, appeal is not irrelevant, but how important it is depends on what's important to you. The second question here, how frequently do you check the appeal lens? I should say I almost never do. But I do care about appeal. Seaside resorts get higher uh, yields, higher tourism, and got things like national parks and all sorts of things.
0: Appeal is one of those things that I start paying attention to in the m- middle to later game when things like your say, like neighborhoods, and uh, seaside resorts, and if I'm thinking about a national park, comes out. I mean, yeah, sure, if you're certain civilizations like Australia, then you're going to pay more attention to that, because it has an impact on your civilization and your play. But generally speaking, when it's early on in the game, unless you're doing one of these advanced start things, you kind of forget that it's around. And by the time it does come around to being relevant, how relevant is it really? I think the most part I pay attention to appeal when I'm placing down a neighborhood. Because that's going to have an impact on just the housing that I'm going to be able to get from that. But I don't even think about it being appeal. I just go and I say, I want to place down a neighborhood, and then the game is telling me this will give you plus four, plus five, plus six, and I place it. As like you, Willow, I don't even look at the appeal lens. I don't think of it being appeal at all, which, Human Crouton says, appeal requires way too much planning and micromanagement for way too little payoff. That just doesn't really require attention at all, and that's a
1: problem. I really do wish that appeal were a more relevant mechanic early in the game. And I can think of a few ways that they probably could have made it be relevant. Like I could maybe see a system where maybe the average appeal in the city's borders maybe acts as a modifier to amenities or something like that. You know, like if you've got average or better appeal in around your city, like you get like a plus one amenity for each level or whatever of appeal, or, you know, maybe even a penalty if you're settling in disgusting appeal tiles, because you'd think that not liking the environment that they're living in would affect the quality of life and happiness level
0: of the Citizens.
4: Yeah, you'd think settling in the swamp would piss everybody off.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could see something like that working. Yeah, Traveling Canuck brings it up in the thread. Talks about working a tile or having a district on a tile with Charming Appeal will give you plus one amenity, with Uninviting Appeal minus one and Disgusting would be minus two.
1: I'd also like if the restrictions for building a national park were a little (laughs) looser so that you could build national parks in different shapes. And it also, I think, would not be a bad idea for neighborhoods or some like pre-neighborhood thing to be available early in the game. I could see something like villages being unlocked in the late medieval or renaissance era, and then those like upgrade into neighborhoods later when you get the appropriate tech. You know, they'd have to retune it's like city growth and the population thresholds and stuff like that to make something like that work. But yeah, I definitely think that appeal is something that I wish would be relevant earlier in the game.
2: Well, Chris P suggests that maybe the earth goddess mechanic should perhaps be a policy card or no, he's a general mechanic and somebody else suggests that it should be maybe a, a policy card. Cause if you manage to get the earth goddess Pantheon, then Appeal does matter early game, because you get plus one faith for charming or better appeal tiles.
1: Assuming that all of your high appeal tiles adjacent to mountains don't have campuses or holy sites on them, I agree that should be a policy card or something.
2: The game that I'm currently playing, I actually managed to get that Pantheon, and I found myself thinking about, do I want to build a mine here because there's a couple of tiles next door that would no longer get their plus one Faith. I'm not sure how much difference it's actually making in what I do, but I am thinking about it a little bit more.
0: I'm curious, what compelled you to take that Pantheon in the first place, to force yourself to think about such things?
2: Um, I think probably because it hadn't been available the last, I don't know how many games I've played, and I was like, oh, maybe I'll just get to play with Faith a little bit more this game.
1: It's a good pantheon if it's something that you're going to get a lot of use out of. And depending on the civilization you're playing with, if you're playing with someone like Scythia that has an improvement that's a faith improvement and you can put that on high appeal tiles to further boost the faith, it's actually a pretty good pantheon.
0: Hmm, Russia. There is one response in the thread, and this is from Chazzy Cat, who was our guest on episode 195, so a little while ago now. He says, I think the appeal system is fine. Culture is my favorite victory to pursue, so it's certainly relevant. I kind of disagree that it needs to be incorporated into other areas. In addition to the culture game, it already affects religion substantially because holy sites are boosted by mountains, natural wonders, and woods. These are the same things that boost appeal. The only things missing from appeal are coastline and wonders. Coastline is the big one, but they can't really add that for everyone. In my opinion, this is around the right balance. Affecting two of the four victory conditions, particularly the ones where natural beauty is thematically relevant, seems appropriate to me. It's not like scientists or the military really need pretty scenery to do their jobs. If you are just trying to win as fast as possible, then appeal should be relevant. It's a long-term strategy for the late-game eras. If you plan to conquer everyone before resorts are even invented, it would make perfect sense to ignore appeal. Which is kind of what I end up doing.
2: (laughs) Yes, and UW Habs, I really like his idea on the second page, the appeal for neighborhoods giving amenities and how to calculate housing in a different way.
0: Yeah, it does make sense. It is always fascinating sometimes where I'm going to place the neighborhood that's going to give me the best housing, and it's like, hey, the best housing is in this empty desert or tundra tile. Uh, (laughs) Is that because it's a low cost to build a house there? Um, It certainly can't be about the property values or the scenery. Unique improvements disappearing upon conquest. This is thread started by Prester John 2. What do you all think about this mechanism? I tend to agree that unique improvements should be by their building civilization, but unique improvements from city-states if the Civ loses the serenity. My preference would be that unique improvements become dysfunctional upon conquest, but can be repaired if you have the necessary suzerainty. The whole notion to me of unique improvements disappearing upon conquest... No, they should remain. You can make the argument whether or not it should be pillaged or not upon conquest, but I think if you're actually going to pillage that, then you go ahead and pillage that upon your way to conquering it. Yeah. If it's a unique improvement, then you can take advantage of that. You can say... I didn't build this, this civilization built this, now I control it. it, is a kind of a pride thing. Some people argue that, well, Kerat says, I think it should be varied by type and who the AI Conqueror is. No one is tearing down a ziggurat on Conquest. On the other hand, Spain might see the Kurgans as blasphemous, or Khmer might tear down missions. Maybe you should have the option of immediate destruction, especially for ones that yield faith. That seems per particularly awkward. Uh, If you really don't want to have the benefit from that improvement, then why don't you just go around and pillage it along your way and then leave it alone? Or if you're thinking about and it also came up, uh, Forrester said, I think they should remain an act as tourist attractions but giving no other benefit to the conquering Civ. I think you can really go down a rabbit hole, big tangent about saying, well, another civilization may or may not be able to figure out how to improve this unique improvement but if we're going to try to use this realism argument, you're not going to get rid of absolutely everybody in the city who was part of that conquering culture. And you can probably abstract that to say that, you know what, we just force some people from the building civilization are still around to work it on our behalf. And it's just that, again, you conquer it, you get all of the districts in that city, whether they're unique or not. I would say
1: maybe what they could do is they could tie that into the loyalty system. So maybe if you conquer a city that has unique districts or improvements, maybe if you keep those intact, they provide loyalty pressure to the civ that originally you know, built them.
3: Is that really appropriate? Would you have more loyalty in practice if the invading forces tore all your cultural crap down? I'm not convinced about that. Unless you're implying you're just killing everybody. But <laughs> from a gameplay perspective, I think they should stay for a number of reasons. Even the possibility of reconquest. But... Even ignoring that, most of them just aren't good enough to merit this treatment. And it's kind of arbitrary as a rule.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: I think they should stay. And then you would have the option of bulldozing them down if you wanted to. Or you could keep them and get whatever their current benefit is. I think someone pointed out that maybe they would not get the additional benefits that come down the tech tree if you're not the sieve that can originally build them. But they should get tourism. I mean, these sorts of things are almost by definition, like tourist sites, ziggurats or sphinx or what have you.
0: Yeah, I mean, not getting the additional benefits for those unique improvements as you go farther down the technology tree. I mean, at some point, your people, or if you the conquering civ, are going to supplant the originating sieve, or even if it's a blend, you know, it's not completely gone, then you could say the knowledge of how to manage that had been lost, except it's probably going to be documented somewhere along the way about how to maintain this. So I think it's really awkward to say that you're not going to get the benefit that you would get from those conquered unique improvements as you go down the tech path what i wouldn't want to see necessarily though and this is more of a gameplay balancing rather than realism which is hey i just conquered this egyptian city uh now my builders can build sphinxes anywhere and everywhere at some point in the game that might be like okay how is that really unique anymore
2: yeah I, that wouldn't make sense and that would just be incentive to uh, conquer one city from every civ just to be able to do their stuff I should credit Icicle with the idea that they shouldn't get any new bonuses and the ones that gain bonuses through tech, they should be locked at what they were when you capture them. I think that makes sense in that you don't have the same set of cultural influences that led to this thing coming to it. Yes, you've got a mix in there, but it sort of makes sense that the conqueror wouldn't get all of the benefits down the road. They can have all the benefits that are present when they conquer, but not new ones Presumably, they've got their own uniques, so they're developing their own uniques, not the conquered people's uniques. I also like Icicle's suggestion that archaeologists, once you get to them, could remove or plunder them to get an artifact. That would be a different source of artifacts.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that if they're going to stay, there should be some kind of trade-off mechanic where you have reasons that you might want to keep them, and you have reasons that you might want to tear them down, which is where that loyalty idea earlier came into play. If they're going to apply negative loyalty pressure to your city, then that would give you a reason to maybe want to tear them down unless the benefit that you're receiving from them exceeds the loyalty penalty that you're taking.
0: You could also treat them like you would any other improvement. Later on, it's like, you know, there used to be a farm here. But uh, nah, uh I don't need that farm anymore. I'm going to replace it with, I don't know, an entertainment district, for example. This is only giving me plus two food. It's stuck in the plains. I needed it for that temporary growth. But hey, now I've got lots of food coming in from internal trade routes, for example. So I don't need that anymore. So maybe with these unique improvements as well... When you first get it, there's the question of, do I keep it or do I get rid of it? But then maybe later on, if you do decide to keep it, maybe there would be an incentive for you to remove it at some point, if and perhaps we went down the path of, well, this is really beneficial now, but because if we take off on the notion that you're not going to be able to get anything more from it as the conquering sieve than if it had been from the originator, you know, farther down the technology to no additional benefit, then maybe you decide, you know what, it's now outlived its usefulness, I'm going to go ahead and replace that. But whenever you do decide to remove it, it's not going back there. It's not going somewhere else. That choice has been made. Done. We're moving on. And I take it we would also agree that this would apply to those unique improvements from city-states. That, you know, I'm the suzerain of this city-state for 10 turns. Someone else gets more envoys there. Oh, well. (laughs) It's not suddenly the unique improvements that you were able to build from that stop working. They're still there. You just can't build anymore. I don't think there needs to be anything where they suddenly disappear when you're no longer their suzerain because that was constructed at the time that you were, and that can be an acknowledgement of that. Hey, at this particular point in time, I was their suzerain until, I don't know, freaking Germany conquered it.
3: I don't see a clear gameplay reason that that shouldn't apply to all unique improvements, honestly. Like, I think that interaction is mostly fine.
1: Yeah, I could maybe see the justification for districts, but not for improvements.
3: Yeah. Maybe, maybe for districts, they get converted to their original or base form.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Recorded for episode three hundred eight with Magalua, the Me and Team, Mega Bears fan, Canis Alvildus, and the Buzzing.
1: Is there any era score on alliances? Because they're quite good as a passive player for dragging you into wars that you didn't really want to be in.
4: I think there's one for a level three alliance, but I'm not sure.
1: I think so. I almost feel like there should maybe be like a plus one for just doing an alliance, or at least maybe a plus one for reaching level two, and then maybe a plus three or whatever for reaching level three.
4: I feel like the alliance system needs to be fixed a bit, but that would be part of it.
3: The gain incentives need to be fixed Uh, until they are. The diplomacy is always going to be a little iffy. We've covered well. we've mentioned this numerous times the show. We don't need to rehash it.
1: Yeah, as I keep saying, until there's a cooperative victory, there's still no real reason to stay in an alliance. Yeah, unless you're talking dogpiling for a
4: diplomatic victory in general.
1: Well, even a diplomatic victory, if it's still an exclusive victory that only one player gets, then there's still the zero-sum game thing where you're using the diplomacy mechanics basically to improve yourself and undercut the other players. Yeah. So unless there's actually a cooperative or shared victory condition, whether that come in the form of permanent alliances or some other mechanic, eventually you basically have to turn your back on the other players and say, screw you, I'm winning now as opposed to actually genuinely being interested in the success of your allies and cooperators.
3: You can make cooperations just even more juicy, too, because that's what Civ IV did. And that means you would briefly cooperate and then you would turn on each other. But there was some dynamic as to when. Tech trades were just friggin' broken. So if they were on, you used them in multiplayer. If you didn't, you would lose. As <laughs> simple as that. Because somebody else would make a tech trading block and get like thousands and thousands of research ahead of you. Even if they had identical research. It's really stupid. But like if you had that level of power in diplomacy, then you would make diplomacy essentially trump much of what else goes on in the game. If you still left it single winner as well. It would be a it completely different game. But you, you could
1: do it. <laughs> it seems to work reasonably well as a catch-up mechanic. I find the incentive is to create alliances with other people who are not in the lead to help me catch up, and because I'm not worried about them catching up.
3: Yeah, and that's okay, but...
1: Right, because there's still nothing stopping that player in the lead from also being in alliances and their alliances are just as good as the other players' alliances.
3: Ideally, that the AI would try to win, but it seems a lot of the forum disagrees with me that the AI should play Civ 6 and not play something else. But in principle, if you're trying to win, you don't push the leader further ahead and make alliances with them, in principle. But... In practice, that doesn't happen, and everyone wants to roleplay, so they they think this should happen. So, okay, whatever.
1: The leader might also have alliances already in place when they become the leader, so, you know, there's that, too. Well, if you're too far ahead, then drop the alliance. Yeah, I mean, that's true. There's a limit. And because you are stuck with any one of each type of alliance, if somebody's pulling ahead in science and you think they're going for a science victory, you put your alliance with them for science and you have a military alliance or something with them so that they don't turn on you.
3: I guess I would rather do like culture or something. The problem is oftentimes the only way to stop a runaway is to fight them.
1: The cultural alliance is the strangest one because the bonuses that you get over time are based on how well their culture and tourism is doing. And uh, if you think they're going for culture and tourism, when the last thing you want to do is share your culture and tourism with them.
4: Well, the yeah. point of the cultural alliance is
1: to stop them from flipping your cities.
3: Yeah, that's probably the biggest benefit, and it's immediately available. Mm. It's a decent way to like keep the uh, front runner off your back if they're not pushing culture without it significantly benefiting them, unless you're flipping their cities. But uh, come on, and then you can try to become the front runner instead. Meanwhile. And this thread is old, but it's still true today, all from Doc.
2: If you haven't been following it, there's no time to catch up on it now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, fifty-six pages.
2: (laughs) Most of it is not particularly relevant to anything, just people chatting in between random other stuff.
0: Ooh, random other stuff. You might have titled this episode already. Well done. Ooh. I'm gonna write this down right now. So reverent. Actually, could you say it as other random stuff, so then I have the choice.
2: Other random stuff.
0: As of June
3: sixth, is <laughs> it just mirrors have been remarkably quiet on the Civ front? Like Fraxis isn't releasing teasers, hints, goofy marketing. Hey, we're still alive and making Civ six. None of that. And uh, yeah, that's
1: that's true. We've not heard a great deal.
0: They uh, things involved. on
1: Twitter quite often, though.
0: Little advertisements for civilizations and stuff like that. Or on their Facebook page, just like, hey, did you know Civilization six is discounted on Steam again? Yes, thank you.
4: Maybe they had a summer break.
0: When we say all quiet on the Civ front, I think that's more accurate on the PC front, because we've heard a number of things say about Mac and Linux port, and the Nintendo Switch, and the iPad, and now the iPhone that we'll be talking about here in a moment. So, hmm. As for how well did Rise and Fall sell exactly, I think it's more of a question of how well is Rise and Fall selling. It's not like all of the copies of Rise and Fall have been sold, and there's no more. But seeing as how this thread, even though it was started in June, and there's more than 1,100 replies and almost 86,000 views as of this recording, the fact that they are talking about, we're getting reports from Publisher 2K about the port for Civilization Civ 6 here, there, and everywhere, if there's something going on, then they're just not ready to talk about it yet. And we've seen this before. This is not new. The, a lull is not new like this. Maybe it means yes. they are hard at work on an expansion. They're too busy making
1: it to be promoting the game.
2: Well, I can make the case, looking at uh, the Steam info that they are working on DLC for the PC that I would guess is going to be the second it's expansion. There has been activity. They've created the depot. I've been updating this thread as I see stuff going on. But there is good evidence that they're working on something for the PC.
0: I'm pretty sure those updates, they're just fixing typos, Willow. And then then it records that there was an update. And, you know, when you fix a typo, it updates the file.
2: Uh, Right. A a whole depot for a typo?
0: It's a big typo! (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, a uh, apparent um, typo when they first created this depot that has been grouped with the base game and all the, the DLC that are out so far. They uh, named it Boom Goes the Dynamite. And then that changed a few hours later to a depot test.
0: No, I like the big typo, like when they incorrectly spelt yield in the code. (laughs) This was the corporate response to that controversy. I think that explains it all, really. That is boom going the dynamite. That's the dynamite, was spelling yield incorrectly.
2: Mm, Right, right.
0: (laughs) And I just want to say that I'm not actually in
1: any particular rush for a second expansion to come out. You know, I say to Phyrexis, take all the time you need. Make some interesting and unique new features and mechanics that we haven't seen before. Get creative. If it takes a year and a half or two years for a second expansion, but that expansion ends up having really unique content, I'm all for it.
2: Or even just make diplomacy so much better, adding something like a World Congress and just make things work better together where there's lots of little nits that people complain about. I'm definitely fine if they take another six months or a year to make things better.
0: We all welcome the addition of Diplomacy to the Civilization VI title. We do, (laughs) because we don't have Diplomacy right now. Oh, wait, what? (laughs) And uh, as a brief cross-promotion to uh, ModCast, I think all the modders out there would also be appreciative of it being a little while longer, because inevitably with something like that, a lot of mods are going to end up breaking. So if there is a second expansion pack, they would also appreciate a little bit of a heads up <laughs> to get ready. Yeah,
1: I'm nowhere near finishing all my strategy guides for the Rise and Fall Civ, so take your time, for Axis. I don't need another expansion with a whole new set of strategy guides to write.
2: Especially when this thread was started back in June. It's like, um, Rise and Fall has only been out a few months. Why are you saying, yeah, you know, they're not going to put out a second expansion because we haven't heard anything for four months after Rise and Fall. Uh, like I haven't seen the expansion in
1: four months. They're stopped supporting the game. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> what have you done for us
1: lately?
2: Take our money. Take our money. Although I think it would be cool if they put out a few smaller DLC. I think there's plenty of people who would like to spend... Five dollars for maybe another sieve or really nice map pack and scenario or something like that.
3: I saw a um, suggestion to use EU 4s model and l- let me just uh, man, I, I don't want to be too disrespectful, but I know <laughs> 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 Keep in mind, I want to say something disrespectful. I do disrespect quite a bit. The Paradox model, they have a habit of patching out mechanics and then allowing you to do something similar but not completely identical in uh, future DLC releases. Although they are much superior when it comes to multiplayer DLC, because everyone uses the host's DLC. So you don't have to worry about compatibility on increased uh, variants, Depend on who buys what. That's the only way they're better when it comes to DLC. Their DLC model is awful, and if Firaxis went that route, I would lose a lot of respect for Firaxis.
1: Yeah, while we're apparently waiting for a second expansion to be announced or whatever, what uh, have you all been up to when you're playing the game?
2: I'm still working through first game as all the different leaders that are available. Currently playing Robert the Bruce and also taking advantage of some mods. So I've got the Steel and Thunder mods, I think that's what they're called, that add the extra units and so they give Scotland... A, what's it called, Galaglass, which is a medieval melee unit, and been having fun with that. They're about as strong as knights, and put them together and decided, I didn't do much conquering early game, but now time to go out and uh, take down some of my neighbors. Liberated Sparta from from Cyrus, and to make friends with Gorgo, and taken out Cyrus on the way.
0: And then you're going to take out Gorgo next?
2: Um, I think I'll leave her till later. I think we'll be friends for a while, and then uh, yeah, we'll see. It will depend what kind of victory I want. I want to go for, but she's not going to be a threat.
0: Oh, so you want a mostly land-based map then? If you're going after these uh, unique land melee units.
2: Uh, yes, this I played on a Pangaea map. So, but with the detailed worlds mod, which I think gives nicer coastlines and the mountains are a little more interesting.
0: So what other opponents do you have on the map, or is it really just uh, you uh, liberating cities for Gorgo?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I started out on a nice peninsula on my own, so I've mostly been building up and then took a small island off the coast. that, Well, not super small, big enough for three cities, but I've got Peters um, out there building up his culture and great people, so I don't think I'm going to go for a culture win. Although that could be a nice challenge. But Scotland and all their great scientist points, it's absolutely crazy. So I'm just pulling through the tech tree. But then who else is there? The Mapuche are about as far away from me as you can get, along with Montezuma. So I haven't done much with them. Apparently it made them mad at me when I declared war on Cyrus. So they're not being friends either, which is a little bit annoying. I had hoped they'd be friends. And then Alexander's there on the other side of Gorgo. He likes me now, of course, since I'm at war but he may have to go next. We'll see.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say Monty got mad at you because you were settling all these cities peacefully, and so you're hooking up luxury resources that he doesn't have, and then he wants to make you his slaves.
2: (laughs) He's actually paid me for them, and since he's on the other side of the map, he can't really attack me. He wasn't terribly unhappy with me until he decided I was a warmonger, which is kind of silly.
0: Oh, so are you the only warmonger on the map right now? Is that the only war that's going on?
2: Uh, no, Greece and Macedon have been fighting most of the game, and I think Monty had a war with either Russia or the Mapuche, I'm not sure which,
0: earlier in the game.
2: But it, it hasn't been a, a terribly warlike game so far. I'm only on King, so it's just playing around and having fun.
1: is probably just mad at you because you were too far away for him to forward settle next to you. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there's that. There's that.
0: And it also explains why you weren't warring earlier, because you just had peaceful places to settle too.
2: Yes, I had actually had plenty of space on this map. So I settled about nine or ten cities in my area, and then plus three more off the coast on that island. And Cyrus, I, I mean, I settled right up to Cyrus, and he wasn't coming my direction for whatever reason. He, he didn't like that, but he still wanted to be friends. But of course, since he's right there and he had conquered Sparta, I had to go after him first.
0: You were just upset because he was ignoring you until you forward-settled, and then he finally paid you attention.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: He didn't see you as a threat, and even when you forward-settled him, he's just kind of like, eh.
1: Yep, yep. I did have a couple of unique, weird experiences the last game that I was playing. One minor one was a funny diplomatic incident with, uh, what's his name, uh, the second Indian leader, Chandra Guptra. Yep. I started out next to him, and he was mad at me for having settled too close to him. And then I conquered his capital and made peace. And suddenly we were far enough apart that he wanted to be my friend. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of funny. And then I had another game. Uh, I was playing as pound maker and I think the game triggered two emergencies on the same turn, which was something that I didn't even think the rules would allow. And uh, the UI threw up all over itself when that happened, because it was confusing as to which, emergencies i was joining one of them was targeting me and the other was targeting another civ. and then only one of the emergencies actually showed up on the little ui in the the top left corner so i could not check the status of the second emergency to find out if i had even actually joined it or what the progress on it was it was weird
0: did you somehow end up attacking yourself did you declare war on yourself
1: (laughs) i don't know i was worried that was what was going to happen but Has anyone else ever seen more than one emergency gets uh, triggered on the same turn like that?
2: I've not.
0: I have. Like, these two emergencies were, of course, based on quote-unquote proper civs, right? Like you and then some other civilization. The ones that I've seen is there's one for a city-state and then one for a civ proper, so there really wasn't going to be any confusion about which was which. But if you've got one where it's asking you to join a war against somebody, and then there's another emergency against you, and it's confused about which one to ask you about, which perhaps maybe it was going to ask you to declare war on yourself, and then that's why it threw up a fit and just got stuck into this loop of like, this can't actually happen, but I don't know what to do instead, because I have to resolve whether or not you want to declare war on yourself before I can ask you whether or not you want to declare war on this other person.
1: Yeah, I think that might have been what happened. The emergency against me, I think, popped up first, and it like actually was asking me whether or not to join it, and I was like confused, like what? And then I said no, and then the second one popped up, and I was like, what the heck is going on here? Did
0: you like reload for a uh, save to see? Like, is that repeatable? And you're safe.
1: I should see I should go back and see if I still have an autosave from before that happened, because I didn't explicitly save at that point because, you know, it had already happened. But I think I have it set to autosave like every two or three turns. I just have to go back and find out if that autosave has been overwritten yet.
0: Because that could be something you could submit to Firaxis as a bug. Yeah, it, it might very well be a bug. Yeah.
1: And, and it could be that I'm misremembering it because I, I just remember that at the time it happened, I was thoroughly confused as to what was going on and who I was supposed to be declaring war on and who the targets were and what the objectives were. And then once the little pop ups were done, all it said in the top left corner, it has a little thing that shows the list of emergencies. It only showed the one emergency that I was the target of. And I was like, all right, so what the heck's
0: going on with the other one? Like, did I not join it? I don't know. It was weird as you're saying you might be misremembering i just had this are so you going to pull like a series finale to st elsewhere and on the next episode so hey guys remember the thing where i had this emergency declared against me in the game the one thing i didn't tell you was i was dreaming at the time yes so oh, jason i, I <laughs> was so drunk <laughs> Episode 319 with Dan Q, Akalua, Mega Bears fan, Skarmanga, I'm warning you too. Again, we record these episodes live on YouTube every other Saturday starting at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Comment, it's from ETS Harry. He said, I heard you talking about Spies. I am a StarCraft two player and always wondered if you guys mind, and I think I heard before you do, if there was even more micro or speed required in Civ to be a good player. So, like... I would love if the game was designed in a way most things happen really on the map and you would be able to control it with the requisite comment that we need an actual working user interface. Oh, Phil would be proud. Uh, He talks, (laughs) (laughs) Talks about like spies and traitors in late game or if you are slow, you can automate them, but you don't have to. As I read your comments, Harry, I think a lot about Civilization IV because the learning curve was higher for it for a lot of difficulty levels, and to really tap into the game's potential as compared to Civilization V and Civilization 6. In terms of the micro part, I think perhaps that might be something that you would find like in a like a simulation game, a like a, maybe like a paradox game where that minutia is something that is required, whereas in Civilization VI, I would be fine if it was something that you could do, but you wouldn't have to do so long as it was accessible to the player. And the game told you what it actually meant, which is also another thing about what does this do in the game? It's not covered in the Civilpedia. Why am I having to go online to figure out what this does or doesn't do? I feel like Civilization VI does a better job of being closer to Civilization IV than Civilization V with the choices that you can make and even have to make, but it doesn't quite go to the level that was Civilization IV and just how in-depth you could get for better or worse. I thought a lot of people didn't like micromanagement.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, at least Civ gives you the choice between if you want to play at a lower level and just play and not micro every citizen and things like that, you can do that and still have an enjoyable game. Whereas StarCraft, even playing in single player, if you don't get at least a minimum level of micro, you're going to be toast.
1: I think it's the difference between micromanagement and unnecessary overhead because Civ 4 had a lot of time-saving elements to its micromanage, you know, like the most fundamental one being the ability to move units in stacks Not having to move your units one at a time across the map saves a lot of time. So it's easier to micromanage where all your units go because you're moving them in groups. Similarly, you could do things like hold shift and control and stuff like that to add things to queues and it would add them to all your cities or all your cities on a continent. So it was a lot easier from a UI and control standpoint to micromanage in Civ 4. Whereas in Civ 5 and Civ 6, you have to do everything one unit at a time, one city at a time. And it gets a lot more tedious and a lot more annoying. I think in Civ VI, the introduction of cores and armies certainly reduces a lot of the micromanaging. Besides just being like a cool gameplay feature, makes it easier to move move units around in the later era eras. And I definitely prefer to to use those um, combinations.
0: It was nice to see cores and army. It was one of those things from and we talked about it earlier, Civilization Revolution, that uh, can and should have a place in the greater Civilization family. So. I'm glad that was not lost when Civilization Revolution and that offshoot of Civ went by the wayside. That it was brought in. It wasn't just copied as it was in Civilization Revolution, but the concept finally got into mainline Civ. Harry, thank you for your inquiry. And for, of course, listening to the show and being able to listen to us live, for better or worse. Civilization VI now on the iPhone. Uh, not that it's that much of a surprise, seeing as how it just came out on you know the iPad, but it's also, oh, PS, also for iPhone. <laughs> as reported by Chris Holt from uh, Engadget on October 4th, first off, good news for iPad players is those who own Civilization 6 can now snag the iPhone version at no extra cost. It is on sale for $24 until the 16th of October, at which time it will go back up to what is expected to be the full price of about $60. Also, as with the iPad version, the iPhone version will let you play the first 60 turns for free. There is no Rise and Fall expansion pack. There is no online multiplayer, but there is local multiplayer, and it does allow you to get the downloadable content short of the Rise and Fall expansion. Interestingly enough, related to that, there was temporarily an issue, as a matter of fact, a couple of issues. Someone said that when they tried to play the game, that they downloaded all the downloadable content, they paid for it, and then when they went to enable it, it prompted them to buy it again. And also there was an issue where if you downloaded anything, like a downloadable content save, any previous save that you were playing would no longer work, even though that downloadable content should have had absolutely nothing to do with the save game. It was reported, for example, on Reddit, and Aspire's community manager was right there within 24 hours commenting that we're working on it, and then within the same 24-hour period said these problems have been resolved. Very good to aspire uh, for jumping in on that so again it's aspire that is unsurprisingly behind these ports seeing as how they were responsible for the port for civilization 6 you know your desktop and laptop version for the Mac. The review on Arts Technica says that the good about the iPhone version is this the full desktop civilization experience on your mobile devices with no compromises that really matter the interface translates surprisingly well. Yes, not many iPhone games cost uh, $60 up front. It does say that playing on iPhones smaller than the X or XS definitely involves some squinting and very precise tiny button pushing. Battery drink get bad in the AI computation of intensive late game, but apparently people are enjoying it. So as someone said on Reddit, it was Husky Tango. Now, if only we could scale the user interface better on the iPad, that would make it a perfect port. And my thought was, well, maybe there just needs to be some things done with the user interface and six in general to help out and then that could translate to the port so I'm a little bit confused did these ports come with
1: the DLC content already installed or you still have to buy those separately
0: no you still buy those separately
1: oh I was under the impression that they came with all of the uh, DLC
0: no and, and from the screenshots I've seen it's priced as it is on Steam for the PC version so you know depending upon which one it is it's like three four or five dollars for each one gotcha Now, is this going to get me to go out and buy an iPad or an iPhone? Well, on the iPhone front, no thank you. I'm an Android user. To which some people have said, aw, it's a shame it's not coming to Android. And I'm like, well, (laughs) the thing about going onto the iPhone or the iPad is who are you going to talk to in order to best ensure that it's going to work on that device? Go talk to Apple. Who else do you have to talk to? Nobody. Hey, let's get this running on Android devices. Oh, why do we punish ourselves? Something tells me that might be a source of why we see it on the iPad and the iPhone as compared to, say, you know, like an Android phone. Or they might just be seeing how it works on this and then go on to Android. Who knows? I mean, shoot, Civilization Six is coming to the Nintendo Switch. I was kind of like, wow, I figured if you wanted to play Civilization on a console, you'd have to go and find Civilization Revolution or Civilization Revolution 2. I figured that ship had sailed, but nope, nope, it's come back into, wait for it, port. Uh. I've said several times before, I think,
1: The idea of portable Civ is a great idea. And the fact that the technology has actually gotten to a point where they can put the full game out on mobile and portable platforms is pretty awesome. I've got the game for my Microsoft Surface tablet. It's the regular Windows version. And I love being able to take that with me places. Way more portable than my big bulky gaming laptop.
0: Uh, Just to pick apart your language because I can't. is the irregular Windows version?
1: Uh, That would be the Apple version. (laughs) Oh, I
0: thought you were going to say that was any version with mods. But.
1: Well, I guess that
0: too. But yeah, what I meant is the—you
1: the, know—I I just have the standard firaxis developed Windows Steam version of Civ Six on the tablet. It's not a port. I like it.
2: I take it nobody on here actually has the iPad or iPhone version.
0: Nope. No, no. Do you, Willow?
2: I do not. No. Um, I've got an Android phone, and that's about it in that department.
0: I don't touch Apple products, so it's not going to happen. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, if Aspire Media, if someone's listening to the show and wants us to provide us with a copy of the game and an iPhone or an iPad to test it out, I mean, well, I suppose I could find some time.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'd try it out. <laughs> only if I didn't have to buy anything. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, exactly. Send it to
0: P.O. Box. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Aspire, I'll even pay for the electricity to recharge the device. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for me, uh, I mean, I mean, also for you, because we'll talk about it on the show. Yeah, exactly. Yes,
2: I do wonder how the PC game price point will translate on the iPhone. If if people who wouldn't otherwise play the game after you know the October 16th sale is over play the game on the computer, will be willing to pay sixty dollars for a a game on their
1: phone? Yeah, I expressed the same concerns regarding the iPad version. I think either two
0: or four weeks ago. Or even on the Nintendo Switch, for that matter.
1: Well, the Switch, I think it's going to be easier because, you know, with the Switch, you're used to paying $60 for a game. But with mobile devices, you're used to paying $0.99, $1.99, stuff like that. So you see something that's $60,
0: bucks, you are like, whoa. I guess more precisely on the Nintendo Switch, it was $60 for, um, wait, what kind of game now? Strategy, you say? Mm, yeah. What kind of strategy? Whoa. This seems complicated.
1: I really do hope that the release of Civ on these platforms kind of opens the floodgates for other developers to actually take these mobile devices seriously as genuine game platforms and not just avenues for microtransactions and free to play game models that, yeah, you can actually put a legitimate strategy game on here. So, you know, maybe we'll start to see things like city builders or total war game on the phone or something like that. That
0: could be cool. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign.
4: Collective achievements.
0: Personal
3: incentives. Month-to-month commitment.
0: A thank you to lead patron Candice Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, the number is 301 637 7659. That's
4: 301 637 Polly.
3: In Europe, 44 288 7659. That's 44 Polly.
1: The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast,
4: Revcast, and Turncast,
3: or about Polycast in general,
0: log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net.
2: All right. This has been Polycast, episode 320, with Dan Q. Bye-bye. Makalua.
4: That's it. Just bye-bye. No funny stuff? Okay.
2: The me and team.
1: That's one continent under control. On to the next.
2: Mega Bears fan.
1: Time to grab my tablet and get in my car and boot up Civ.
0: Oh, wait.
2: And first-time guest co-host, Willowbrook. Anything else?
0: Well, I'm just here contemplating. Jason, you're getting into your car and booting up Civ. It doesn't necessarily mean you're driving. That's true. I wasn't taking that that's what you were going to do at all until you said, uh-oh. And then I thought less of you. Well, he realized
3: his chauffeur wasn't there.
0: Oh 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 I yeah. see. Oh. Well wow, that's man, we all have that problem, right? When the chauffeur doesn't show up. Ugh. Yeah. That's a really bad day. I notice that problem all the time on when I'm trying to go to work.
3: I wind up having to drive for some reason.
1: Ooh, stopped at a red light. Up. What is this? Stopped at a red light. I can play one turn, right? Just one?
3: <laughs> I feel like I'm behind some of those people sometimes.
0: Oh, that would be a terrible segue. Speaking of other random stuff, it's Mackie. Wait, what? Hi. And yes, you know what? I'm going to say this now. It can be included in the post-produced version. It doesn't have to be part of the live stream. But oh my gosh, wait, there is more than one woman on the internet? No, no, it can't be. can't be. (laughs) I was
4: also going to say, this is how you greet one of the two birthday girls in this chat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Congratulations for still being on the internet? No? Yes? (laughs) Yes? No? Everybody
4: here just face palm raise your hands. My hand's raised. <laughs>
0: yep. I will wait until it's absolutely necessary. Speaking of absolutely necessary, hi, Phil.
4: Don't be alarmed, Phil. He's been greeting everybody like that, apparently.
0: That was
3: definitely uh, Jason. My microphone's been muted for the past couple minutes. What did I do? He's saying
0: it's sketchier than sketchy. It's true, actually.
4: Lexus <laughs> in this random.
0: Yeah, so we will start live streaming in just a few moments here. I'll do the countdown. And then we'll do have the wait and then we'll have the hum. Oh, namaste. Oh, there it goes. OK, I'm back. <laughs> oh, wait, no one's back. Oh, Willow. I think it's Willow. Hello,
2: oh. I'm here. Do you hear me?
0: Yes, we do. We're just getting some uh, feedback all of a sudden from you. Oh. Your, your computer is really excited to be on a podcast, I can tell.
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's actually my phone, so I don't know why there would be any feedback, but um, and my computer is
0: silent. I'm hearing it a little bit when you're talking, but it's it's much better now. I, I think your phone is just excited, and you know what? I can't blame it. I, I really can't. Yeah, I need to be
3: able to see the chat here. Sorry, right, I forget how I figured that out last time.
0: If you're on the new one, it's a
1: button in the bottom left.
3: At least I see that's where it. it was for me. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, okay, yeah, because I'm doing the intro. So <laughs> fantastic.
2: That's a good chunk of time when I got two little kids around, but um, I'll let you know when it looks like it might be doable. Okay. I haven't done any multiplayer with Civ 6 yet, so I listened to the turn cast, and okay. it sounds like that would be a good way to get introduced
1: sit down, kids, and watch mommy school some noobs. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and by noobs, we mean the barbarians.
3: That one moment when you were, like, prompting me to go, and, like, I was I, I was eating on the show because I knew it was going to be long. <laughs> I, I, like, I wrong piped something and had to put myself on mute. <laughs> so I just <had> <laughs> wasn't answering, you know? <laughs> oh, like, well, that. I,
0: I, like, I can't say anything right now because it's going to be, like... Oh, that sounds like a great lesson. Hey, kids, can you spell... No. Oh,
4: <laughs> uh, no, no. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's a bit much. Um, so, Willie, you would be willing to appear on the show again? That's a great question to ask right after the last comment, but I'll ask it anyway.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would be willing to take the risk.
3: From Duck Duke. One or the other. I don't know how to pronounce D-U-U-K.
0: I took it as Duke, but then, of course, as you said Duck, I, I started thinking of Duck, Duck, Goose. I kind of regressed a little my age. I, I mean, it could be Duak or Duak. It almost sounds like duup, up Duak, Do. Du- there we go. Duck. No, Hanson. No, no, no. <laughs> if anybody listening to this right now is wondering, is this a backdoor pilot for Politicast? I refer to a word that Phil used near the start of this discussion. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, sorry for the tangent there. It sounds like you have experience, but I'm not going to ask you the question because I I don't want the answer. So I'm just going to awkwardly look over in this direction now. Any other game experiences? (laughs) Nothing to see here.
2: I was just listening to the end of last week's show to try to remind myself as to how that went. I can't guarantee it will go smoothly, but I I will try.
0: Well that's what post production and the blooper reel is for.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Record date October 6th, 2018.
4: Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips, Copyright Take Two Interactive.
0: Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.